Have you noticed in life it's pretty important uh, to speak clearly and have people listen carefully? Uh, that when you want to communicate, you want to make sure they understand what you're saying. And as you think about that, uh, there are some people in America that really have a physical struggle with that because they have a, a condition or an issue called stuttering. And, and you think about stuttering or people who do stutter, and often it can be a condition that can be uh, eliminated through uh, particular ways of uh, training uh, that which comes out of your mouth. Uh, but as you think about stuttering, stuttering is, is, is not a symbol or a statement of a person's intelligence because the person who stutters, it's not that they don't know what to say, uh, but they're having difficulty saying it. And as you think about that, I was uh, thinking about a story I heard about uh, these two friends that had been friends for a long time, and, and then it just happened to be that they had not seen each other for a significant period of time. And so they finally got together, and the friend, uh, one friend had a stuttering problem, one did not, and the one who uh, visited the one who had the stuttering problem was surprised in that in the meantime of their being together, he had made a lot of money. And he asked him, well, how did you make some money? And he said, well, I went into sales. I said, well, what? He said, what, what were you selling? He said, I was selling Bibles. Well, how did you turn it into something so lucrative? Well, he said it was pretty simple. I, I'd go to the door, and I would, I would simply say this. I, I told them, you can buy a Bible from me, or I can just read it to you. You know, as we think about it, sometimes we have a difficulty communicating in a simple way, in a clear way, in a way that does not take an enormous amount of time. But as we think about stuttering, we need to realize a lot of great people have had stuttering issues. Moses, as he tried to get away from speaking for God, uh, claimed that he had a, a speech impediment. Uh, but as we think about all those in the world, and even the one who created the world, one thing we can know for, true, uh, for sure is that, that God does not have a problem with stuttering. That God speaks clearly, and the only problem that we have are we listening carefully. Well, what I want to do today is I want to go back and just simply look at what God said to us clearly and what should be our response. And really, in the midst of all I want to share with you today, I really have three simple points that we'll probably spend more on the last two. Is As we think about it, God wants us to teach us something. And what does he want us to teach? He wants us to teach us who is good. He wants to teach us how to worship. And he wants to teach us what is just. And this is so... Uh, uh, found in the context of what we've been going through as we've looking, been looking at the book of Exodus, which is God's way out, not only for his people then, for his people now, as we think about his plan for us. And as it begins, God wants us to understand who really is good. And, and the Ten Commandments really are the picture of that. It's God in his top ten, his uh, ten words, his, his decalogue, his Ten Commandments or his Ten Laws. Uh, puts it pretty powerfully about how we live compared to how he wants us to live. And, and Jesus made it even more clear as far as all the depth of what those commandments are all about. Uh, but as we think about that, and I, and I am going to resist the temptation to preach it again, uh, but as you think about it, uh, really what it's speaking about is who we are and who he is. Because when you think about who is good, God is good, and we're not, and we desperately need to be connected to the one who is good. Uh, Jesus so plainly illustrated that in, in an encounter he had with a, a man who was pretty well off, who, who, who saw in Jesus what he saw in no one else, and he comes up to Jesus in Mark chapter 10, and he says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
And that's an amazing statement from someone who we find in the story was very religious, who, who seemed to follow after God, but he, he recognized that somehow he wasn't filled with confidence that when this life was to end, he would be in the presence of God. So he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds, first of all, by, by asking him, uh, makes a statement and then asking, you know, really kind of a question. He says, well, why do you call me good? That's the question. And then he answers that no one is good except God alone. And, and really, that's the heart of the message of this book, uh, this big book that has the Old Testament and the New Testament, is you need to understand who God is and who you are. God is good. You're not. And you better find out the way you can con- be connected to this good God. So this rich young ruler is still struggling with that question, and so Jesus says, well, okay, uh, obey all the commandments. And primarily, he was probably talking about the Ten Commandments. Uh, and, and this man responds, and he responds back, says, well, <laughs> I really have done so since I was a young person. And Jesus, really knowing the heart of, of this man who came to him, uh, desiring that which is best, to inherit life that lasts forever with a good God, uh, he says, okay, uh, maybe you don't quite understand this. I'm, in, I'm inserting those words in the text. But he says, okay, what I want you to do, and this is the only person he said this to. He says, I want, to take all, you to, I want you to take all of your possessions, sell them, and give to the poor. For you see, he's, Jesus saw at the heart of this person who thought he was good that he was not good because he was really selfish in his heart. Now, even the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet. He coveted everything this world has to offer, more importantly than the, a living relationship with the one and only good God. And so when he heard these words, because he had so many things that he held on so tightly, and isn't that what we do in our own life? We, we hold on to things that so tightly that we, we can't even see God or open up to what God wants to give us. He went away sad uh, because he did not want to give up what, which would not last forever to gain that which would, would last forever, knowing the good God who makes us who is not good uh, by what Jesus does on the cross. So what does God say to us without stuttering? Uh, Teach us who is good. God, God alone is good. And Jesus is the good one, the good shepherd who came for us. But then secondly, in this whole series of looking at God's unveiling laws to the people of Israel, the Mosaic Covenant, and and there's principles for our life to to look after as well. Uh, But particularly, they were under this covenant. And so he goes on and he gives the other 603 commandments. Uh, but before he does that, he wants them to understand that what I want you to understand is that you need to come to me and understand it's all about knowing me. And if you know me, you'll want to worship me. And so then he teaches us what is worship. And I want to pick up the account right after the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, beginning at verse 18. He gives us principles of worship. He says, all the people, this is the, the people, the people of Israel that, that God had spoken out, the, the Ten Commandments, All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. And really what we're going to see in this first account of what happens right after the Ten Commandments are given, you're going to see that as you really draw near to God, it's all about worshiping Him. And it's also about the principle of true worship comes from fear. Uh, a, a real understanding of who God is and who you're, who you're not. You're not worthy to be in his presence. And so when they see a manifest presentation of God in God 
through the thunder and the sounds and the lights showing how powerful he is, they are filled with fear to the point they're trembling. And then it goes on and says in verse 19, Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen. But let not God speak to us, or we will die. Now, that's fear, isn't it? If you're so fearful in whatever circumstance you're in that you're afraid your life is going to end, that is, that is ultimate fear. And they saw here the need for them that they, they needed a mediator. That's a fancy word that the Bible uses. They needed someone to stand before them and God. And it's interesting, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 21, I think I have in your outline this morning, it really speaks about that, that Moses also was trembling with fear in the presence of God. Can I kind of speak a little bit slower just for a moment? When you really understand how awesome God is and how powerful and holy he is, it will produce in you a fear. And that often happens in our own culture. When, when something happens beyond our ability to handle, we'll say, well, that'll, that'll put the fear of God in, in me or somebody else. Because we're in the midst of something that we cannot handle on our own. And, and that's what they were experiencing. And, and so Moses speaks to him. It's interesting. Verse 19, he says, Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen, but let not God speak to us, we will die. Verse 20, and Moses said to his people, do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. Now that almost sounds like God is stuttering. He, he, he through Moses, says, don't be afraid, but have fear. And I think the only way to understand that, and in the Hebrew, it's the, it's, the, it's the Hebrew word yirah, and there's only one other major word for fear in the Old Testament, fodad, is that yirah, or yirat, depending on the form of the verb, he's really saying here is, look, at, I want you to have a healthy fear of God, not an unhealthy fear of God. And one of the most common exhortations from God as he delivers a message to people is, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. And yet we know the Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge, and it's the only way to have a full understanding of the Holy One. So it's like, be afraid, but don't be afraid. In fact, be afraid, but be fearful. Be fearful. So what he's really saying here, have a healthy fear of God, not an unhealthy fear. And I'm going to rush into that just for a moment. What does it mean to fear God? What does it mean to fear? It's to tremble, have reverential awe, obey, and respect. There is a trembling in his presence, but not to the point that you're out of control. In fact, I'd put it this way. An unhealthy fear is an out-of-control experience and then getting careless in, in his midst. What did the people do in an unhealthy fear? They backed away from God. They, they, they got even further from the mountain in which God had presented himself. And God, through Moses, said, look, I'm testing you. I want you to have a fear of me, but instead of running from me, I want you to run to me because I am a good God that cares for you in the deepest ways. And, and so you need to understand that you don't want to come to me in a careless way with, with uh, a sense of an entitlement, but a sense that because I'm a good God, I'm inviting you into my presence. So have a healthy fear of God, which is be in control, but be careful. Don't have be an unhealthy fear of God, out of control and care, careless. 
But then he goes on and gives some other principles in terms of how they were to approach him or to worship. And worship is coming in the presence of God and recognizing who he is. He is, he is to be feared in a healthy way and not to be feared in an unhealthy way. And, and then it goes on in verse uh, 22 and 23, and then we'll skip to 25. It's the principle of simplicity. He goes on and says, Then the Lord God said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, You yourself have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You shall not make other gods before me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. And then going down to verse 25, says this, If you make an altar of stone for me, you shall not build it of cut stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you shall profane it. Now this is part of that text in the Bible sometimes. You go, what in the world is he trying to say here? Well, see, you need to understand that the whole focus of being in the presence of God is, is not the trappings around us. It's not the things that we try to produce to impress God by what we carve in terms of an altar or a statue in relationship to him. He's saying, simply come to me, simply. You know, one of the healthy things that happened in churches recently, at least in America, is that uh, most churches don't have a strict uh, dress code. Uh, you, you don't have to wear gloves, women, and, and long dresses to, the, to your ankles. You, you don't have to, uh, men, wear a t- coat and tie. And he said, just simply come to me. Sometimes what has happened in the past, there's nothing wrong with dressing up to come to church, but we're so con- concerned about are, are we dressed right on the outside, and we're not concerned about are we right on the inside. Sometimes we say, I can only worship in certain settings, and there's all kinds of examples of that throughout church history as well as in modern times as well. Well, if the church doesn't look right, I can't worship. He said, I want you to come to me simply. I don't want you carving any things up. I don't want you engraving any things on the statutes or the altar. I simply want you to come to me. And really, that's what worship is. Worship is simply coming to Jesus. So what does it mean to worship? What does he teach us about how to worship? Uh, the principle of fear, uh, the principle of healthy fear, the principle of simplicity, just come as you are. And, and, and then there's the, the principle of sacrifice. And looking at verse 24, Moses delivers this word to them. Um, you, you shall make an altar of earth for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. I, I will come to you and bless you. Here God inserts, again, kind of the, the foundation of our faith. As we come to the presence of God, uh, we come giving, giving God our best. You know, some people come to church, and they're looking for what they get out of it rather than they give to it. And God wants us to give our best to him. They were, they were people, their livelihood was dependent upon their sheep and their oxen. He said, Let, give your best to me and, and make it an offering. In this particular case, is it a burnt offering and a peace offering or a fellowship offering? The burnt offering was a picture of the one who was to come and who was going to be the once and for all sacrifice for their sins. See, they need to be reminded over and over again, God is good, they're not good. They need to have a healthy fear of God. They need to come to him simply, but they need to recognize that they don't come empty-handed. They need that which will cover their sin, and that was what the burnt offering was all about. It was completely consumed. But there was a peace offering, a fellowship offering, and in that they had the ability to participate in it, and it was, it was, a, it was a picture of relationship. 
God is holy, and he is a God that will judge us, but he's a God who invites us to be in his presence. And so as we think about what it means to worship, it's, it's, there's the principle of fear, there's the principle of simplicity, there's the principle of, of, um, of sacrifice, and, and God calls us to give, his, give him our best. In Romans, it says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, the goodness of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice to him, which is your spiritual service of worship. When you give God your best, you give your lives a sacrifice to his will and his plan for your life. And then the principle of purity, and this is a version here that's kind of strange, verse 26, and it says, And you shall not go up by steps to my altar so that your nakedness will not be exposed on it. And you go, what in the world is that about? Well, if they were to go up to an altar and there was any ways of going up on steps and people were below, and you understand how they were dressed in those days, basically the men wore dresses or long shirts, Often they went combat style. They didn't have anything underneath. And he said, if you come up that way, your nakedness will be observant to all who are around. And he says, I want you to come to me where you don't expose anything uh, that will somehow diminish the holiness of this moment. Now, we usually don't have a problem that way. In fact, later on, God gave them very specific commandments of having, having linens on before they went up to worship. But, you know, the Bible says uh, that we ought to come to God presence in a holy manner. In Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, it says, search me, O God, and know my heart. You know, when you come to a place of worship publicly or even personally, ask this prayer of God. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. Where in my life am I not trusting you? And then then see if there be any hurtful way in me. What am I doing wrong that's not pleasing to you? And then lead me in the everlasting way. And First John 1 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us, to cleanse our lives and forgive us of all of our sins. So as you think about worship, and as you worship at home or if you are with us uh, this week in our courtyard worship, uh, come to worship carefully, not carelessly. The principle of fear, the principle of simplicity, just come as you are. The principle of sacrifice, give God your best, not only on that day of public worship, but throughout the week. And then the principle of purity, I want to live a life in which I honor God by what I do and how I live. So as you think about God, God not stuttering, he speaks to us clearly, he speaks to us clearly who is good, and that's what really the Old Ten Commandments is about, is to lead us to the one who is good. It's a tutor to lead us to Christ, the one and only good one who, who manifests himself completely as God because he was God. Teach us who is God. God is good. We're not. Teach us what, uh, how to worship. And we just went through that in terms of the principles. This is God led Moses to lead the people for what's coming next. But then the whole rest of the commandments were really to teach them what is just and, and to help them understand how to, how to live in a way that, that honored him not only in their lives but in the people around them and how they were to, to, to live that out. And so looking at teaching us, what is just. Sometimes when we look at God's word, we're, we're challenged by it, by some of the things that his people did or did not do. And we wonder, well, why, did, why did, and we're going to look at this right now, why did God allow slavery? Why did God allow polygamy? Why did God allow some of his closest followers to be involved in all kinds of sin? Well, I think we get a glimpse of that as we look at uh, the passage in Matthew chapter 19, verse 8. 
in which Jesus said to them, you know, why did you allow divorce, which ruins the family? And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been that way. And I would, I would just uh, submit to you as you think about some of the things in the Bible that just cause you to scratch your head and wonder, well, where was God when all this is happening? Is that remember what God allows is not always what God approves. Remember that what God allows is not always what God approves. And looking at Exodus chapter 21, 1 through 11, as we, as we look at this, right when he gets specific about the commandments, he, he speaks about slavery. And you're thinking, he didn't have to write 11 verses here and some verses other places in the text and throughout the first five books of, of the Bible, which is the Torah, the law. Why didn't he say no slavery? And that gets back to the principle of why God allows any sin, uh, because the hardness of our heart. I mean, he could have started all over again, just like he did with Noah. He could have just wiped us all out and started again. But in his grace and mercy, he said, I'm going I'm to allow this to be played out and allow people to see their own sin and be drawn to me. And so God allows slavery. And as you think about God allowing slavery, and we're going to look at the specific reasons why God allowed that, I want you to understand that, that slavery has been throughout the history of man. We brought slavery into this world, not, not, not God. Um, and all these uh, authors I'm going to read from are, are, are black professors or black lawyers who have made these historical comments about slavery. About slavery. As an economist, author Thomas Sowell says, more whites were brought as slaves to North America than blacks brought as slaves to the United States or to the 13 colonies from which it was formed. White slaves were still being bought and sold in the Ottoman Empire decades after blacks were freed in the United States. What am I saying here? Slavery is not simply a black problem. It's been a white problem on both sides of this. Uh, goes on and, and looking at various other things, just looking at historically. Slavery has been a part of world history from the very beginning. Egyptians, Sumerians, Babylonians, Assyrians, Phoenicians, uh, Sirens, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Greeks, Romans, and all the rest had slaves. In fact, furthermore, uh, in the first century, approximately 85 to 90% of Rome's population consisted of slaves. It was the unusual thing if you were born free. And, and you think, well, that's just a past problem, and, and, and why didn't and it's a current issue that we've got to deal with. Well, uh, about some things that have happened in our recent past. Uh, well, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there are an estimated 27 million men, women, and children in the world who are enslaved today. Physically confined or restrained and forced to work or controlled through violence or in some way treated as property. Therefore, this is the comment that that soul makes. Therefore, there are more slaves today than were seized from Africa in four centuries of the transatlantic slave trade. 11 million total, and about 450,000 of them, or about 4% of that total, were brought to the United States. But the modern commerce and human rivals everything that we can imagine that has happened in the past. And so as our heart is broken, it should be broken by the slavery that's in our history. We need to recognize that's still happening today with more, norm, with more numbers than ever. And as we think about that, we need to understand that uh, as we look at our part in the American history about that, what was special about America was not that it had slavery. 
And so we don't, we don't consider us more righteous or special. The hand of God was on us because we had slavery at the incept of our country. But what makes us special is that it existed all over the world, but that Americans were among the very few peoples who began to question the morality of holding human beings in bondage. It was not yet a majority view even in America, but it had such a significant minority view that we fought a world war, we, we fought a civil war over it. And, and where in the Western civilization, slavery was basically eliminated because I believe the Christian, Judeo-Christian perspective where arrest, the rest of the world thought it was still commonplace. You know, to think about that, we need to understand that um, the problems that we've had as a culture, uh, are, are, we're still wrestling with them, but, but sometimes we're looking for the wrong solutions. The pretense is that, for instance, our, 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 our over-occupation about what's happening in the police force, and, and there are some reforms that need to be done. But Walter Williams, another professor, a black professor, says this, the pretense is that police conduct stands at the root of black problems. According to the NAACP, from 1882 to 1968, there were 3,446 black people lynched at the hands of whites, which is incredibly evil. But he says, today being murdered by whites or policemen should be the least of black worries. In recent times, there's an average of 9,252 black-on-black murders every year. Over the past 35 years, that translates into nearly 324,000 blacks murdered at the hands of other blacks. Only a tiny percentage of blacks are killed by police. For example, in Chicago this year, there were 414 homicides with a total of 2,078 people shot. So far in 2020, three people have been killed by police and four were shot. Manhattan Institute scholar Heather McDonald reports that a police officer is 18 and a half times more likely to be killed by a black male than an unarmed black male is to be killed by a police officer. Slavery is horrendous and it's evil, but, but I want you to understand that, that we, we fought a civil war where 620,000 people died because we saw it as evil. Now, we have, we have done so many horrific things since then, but we need to realize that sometimes our, our approach to handling the situation brings more harm than that which is good. Again, Williams and Soul say this, were children raised with only one parent as a common at any time during the first 100 years after slavery as the first 30 years after the great expansion of the welfare state in the 1960s? As of 1960, 22% of black children were raised with only one parent. 30 years later, two-thirds of black children were being raised without a father present. Now, there's all kinds of reasons those things happen, but we need to recognize that, that sometimes we're, just, we're going down the wrong path. People are enslaved by so many things, and, and we need to stand up when there isn't justice and fairness in the judicial system and uh, among those who, who govern behavior in, in the police force. But we need to recognize that some of the things we're doing is, is just hurting people more than helping them. And even, even illegal immigration, it's interesting as you look at black economists during that period of time, they pleaded with America to, to, to not have 
open borders because they were taking jobs out of certain segments of our population. What I'm just simply saying is that we live in a broken world. And really, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. It begins with each one of us. And if our primary goal is to rescue people from suffering today, but understand, but don't understand the need for rescuing people from the suffering that's going to happen in eternity. If, if they don't turn to the one who's only good, we, we miss it. And so, so God allowed slavery in a broken world. And he allowed it even with his own people for, for a particular purpose. And, and we're going to see that. And, and some of those purposes were just to help those in need. So real quickly, let, let's look at what were some of the needs of that day that why God allowed slavery to happen. First of all, Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, and it, it speaks of, of slavery. It says, now, now these are the ordinances which you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve you for six years. But on the seventh day, he shall go out as a free man without judgment. And, and so he, he implies right in the beginning there's going to be slavery. But why was there slavery? Because of extreme poverty. In Leviticus chapter 25, uh, verses 39 through 41, we hear these words. That the countrymen of yours, he's speaking to the Hebrew people, become so poor with regard to you that he sells himself to you. You shall not subject him to a slave service. In other words, you need to recognize that you need to treat him as, as, a, as a valued part of your family and workforce. He shall be with you as a hired man as if you were a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. He shall go out from you, he and his sons with you, and shall go back to his family that he may return to the property of his forefathers. The whole idea would they be they'd be enslaved if they were in abject poverty so they could get back on their feet. And the compassion of those who, who brought people in, basically as indentured servants, was to, to help them, not to hurt them. And to be generous afterwards. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 12 through 15, we have these words. When you set him free, you shall not send him away empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally from your flock and from your threshing floor and from your wine vat. You shall give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. God has called his people to be generous people. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. So why did God allow slavery? As horrific as it can be and how it's been uh, destructive in people's lives for centuries, we need to recognize that, that uh, God did it to help people get out of poverty. But only for a period of time. They were set free after six years of, of labor. Also because of debt. Uh, there's a story, and we won't look it up, in 2 Kings chapter 4, 1 through 7. It's the story of Elisha with a woman, and uh, she has uh, lost her husband. And all of a sudden, she, she, is, she recognizes that now she's fully in debt, and the creditors are to come. And she tells Elisha, I'm going to have to sell my two sons to pay off our debt. And then God allows Elisha to do some miraculous things, and, and they're able to, to raise funds, and they're able to pay off the debt. But see, what, what is the alternative? Someone owes large amounts of money to someone else that used to be a, a part of certain cultures. They were debtors' prisons. You threw them in prison until they could pay the debt. But how's that supposed to work? Because they're in prison and they can't make money to pay the debt. And God allowed people to, to become like indentured servants, slaves, um, so that they could pay off that which they owed. And, and that's part of the, the culture of, 
of, of slaves or indentured servants, even in our own family, to get over on the Mayflower, a George Soul, which is the, the from my mom's line in the, of the family, he, he came over as an indentured servant. And he had to pay his way off to be able to become a free man. And that was true in the time of Israel. So why did God allow slavery at the hardness of people's heart, but to alleviate extreme poverty, to pay debt, and also for restitution? In Exodus chapter 22, verses 1 through 3, we have this. If, if a man steals an ox or sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. That was kind of deterrent. If you get caught, you're going to have to pay more than you got. And then it goes on, if the thief is caught while breaking in, is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltness on his account. In other words, he already got his, his just due. He, he died in the midst of taking something that was not his. But then in verse 3 it says this, But if the sun has risen on him, uh, there will he be blood guiltless on his account. In other words, if he gets caught, uh, he shall surely make restitution. If he owns nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. So again, the idea, look, at it, if you take something from somebody, you're going to have to pay it back. And if you don't have the means to pay it back, they were sold into slavery to pay uh, that which they owed another. Uh, an, another reason for it was uh, for the purpose of marriage. And as I began in Exodus chapter 21, uh, we talked about those who were going into slavery. And in verse, picking up verse 3, it says this, if he comes along, he shall go out alone. If he is husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. If the master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children will belong to her master, and he shall uh, go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, and then we'll get into that a little bit later in verses 5 and 6, but he goes on in verse 7, he says, If a man sells his daughter as a female slave... She is not to go free as the male slaves do. And there's a whole context behind that. It has to wait for a period of time. If she is displeasing in the eyes of her master who designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He does not have authority to sell her to a foreign people because of his unfairness to her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of the daughters. If he takes to himself another woman, he may not reduce her food or clothing or, or her rights. If he shall not do these three things for her, then she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Now, that's somewhat complicated words, and we're not taking a lot of time to explain every phrase in that, but it's simply this. You're, you're a father, and you have, you have daughters, and you're looking at their prospects, and you're saying, well, you know, they, they don't have a whole lot of means to be able to, to provide for themselves on their own in terms of getting certain positions of, of business. And so I, I need to put them in a family in which they'll be provided for. And one of the ways to do that, they, they would pick out a family and say, well, what, what do you think about my daughter as a, as, as a wife to either the, uh, the man of the house or to one of the sons? And he said, well, if, if what we can do is develop an arrangement that you will take care of her that will be the case, but we want to make sure it's going to work for you and for her. And so they would send this daughter into the home, and, and, and that would allow the, uh, the man and, and, the, and the daughter to figure out, is this going to work? I mean, is, am I going to fit in this family? Because when they went to the family, that was their family. And I don't know about you, but every, every family is different. In fact, uh, just, just some free advice for people who haven't got married yet. You need to realize that when you get married, not only do you get married to the person, 
but you get married to their family as well. So you better be able to get along with the in-laws, and they're not going to be outlaws the rest of the time you have together. And, uh, and it might be particular people within the family. You have to get, to get used to them a little bit. I know um, <laughs> sometimes it happened with me when people come to my home, whether it be the daughter or the, uh, or the, or the, or the son coming into our, our family. And, and sometimes I, I just get a little sarcastic with people. You know, I, I kind of give them a bad time. I try to push their buttons and see how they respond. And I remember my daughter, Cindy, didn't exactly like how I did it one time with one of, uh, the, people, one of the persons she was dating, and uh, I kind of had to go back and kind of ask forgiveness on it. But, you know, you need to realize that, that when you come into a family, you, you better get along with that family. And so that's what would happen here. These daughters would be sold into what you call like a slavery, or they would go to work for that family. But it was for the purpose not to, to punish them, but to... Uh, allow them now to be in that place where they might be able to find a life partner. So as you look at well, why did God allow slavery? And again, it was out of the hardness of, of people's hearts. But number one, to alleviate extreme poverty. If, if, if a person found in that situation, to, to be able to pay back debt, uh, restitution. If you took something from someone, you, you had to be able to, to, uh, to deal with that what you had taken with. Uh, a marriage, finding places in, in a wholesome way where people could, could find a, a life partner. But, but I want to look at one other particular place because we need to understand that there was slavery within the Hebrew nation, but there was also slavery that they uh, got from people that they had conquered, particularly in the promised land that was to come. And in Leviticus uh, 25, verse 44, it says this, As for your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may acquire male and female slaves from the pagan nations that are around you. So yes, uh, God allowed them to have slaves from other countries. But, but I want to submit to you that as you think about why did God allow that to happen, it's because it was a, it was a merciful alternative, uh, particularly in that day in the cultures around them. And you understand that this is, this is where God's people were distinct. Uh, usually when you conquered a nation, particularly if they were in that surrounding area in which you were going to live, you just totally wiped them out. And so there was an alternative. Either you can... You can Join our family and serve us uh, as a slave, or you can die. And so God gave an alternative for death for people who were facing that in their own lives. And God always said that we ought to be responsible in carrying them in a caring way. In Job 31, 13 through 15, we have this. Paul writes, uh, Job writes, If I have despised the claims of my male or female slaves when they filed a complaint against me, then what then could I do when God arises? And when he calls me to account, what will I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him in the same one fashion us in the womb? So there's always in, in God's plan that we are all made in his image. We are all part of one race, the human race. And, and God loves us all no matter what plight we might be in. But again, you might be thinking, well, you know, I don't seem to have all my, <laughs> my questions answered. Is that, is that all there? It was just, it was for pragmatic reasons. I want to submit to you that slavery, and there's been so many abuses, and we ought to break our heart, what's happening in the past and what happens now in hurtful ways for people because of the color of their skin. And I've seen it up firsthand. But you need to understand that, that God has a, has a bigger perspective an eternal perspective. You know, 
think about this, particularly if you, if you are considering or have made that commitment to follow the living God. He wants you to understand that this world is not our own. We're, we're, we're our home. We're, we're just passing through. Listen to what he says, particularly in the New Testament. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets that were before you. When, when, you know, I, I don't mind doing the work of a servant as long as people don't treat me like a servant. I, I, I don't mind being a slave as long as you know, you know, doing slave work as long as you don't treat me like a slave. And Jesus said, blessed are you when people persecute you, do all kinds of evil against you. doesn't mean we're a doormat, but it does mean that we have a bigger perspective about life other than just what happens here. Philippians 1.29 says, For to you has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. When's the last time we thought about that? God has called us to put our trust in him, but he's also called for us to be willing to suffer, to see the things of eternity much more important than the things of the present. Or how about historically all the things that have happened to God's people? Hebrews 11, 37 through 39. They were stoned. They were sown in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy. They were so much better than those who were oppressing them. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all of these, all of these who suffered the persecution of this world, the heartaches of this world, and all these having gained approval through their faith did not even receive what was promised. God's people have experienced so much hardship because they align with the living, holy, good one, God. Even thinking about God's people, they, <laughs> in the time of Egypt, they, they were enslaved for over 400 years. And then God sent them free. And finally, it's the picture of salvation. And I just want to read a couple verses out of Exodus chapter 21, and then we'll be done. In Exodus chapter 21, we, we, we have these words. If the slave plainly says, I, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God, and then he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. Now, these two verses kind of give a picture of, of a choice, of one who had been sold into slavery because of extreme poverty, out of debt, out of restitution, or maybe because of a marriage or arrangement. And, and his time of serving is, is up because he's paid his, his debt. He's paid back what he has taken, or, or maybe now his poverty has been relieved. But, but, but now he wants to stay in that relationship. But, but it has to be a willing choice. It's not coerced. And even in the arrangement, as the judges are set before, the, the master has to go out and the, and the slave, the one who is in that servitude of the, of the, of the master in the home, he has to choose on his own that, that he, he wants to stay in that position of being under the leadership of someone else. And, and what they do, they, they would mark that person who wanted to remain a slave, a part of that family he was not in. They, they, would, they would take him by his ear and they would put it against a doorpost and then they would, they would take a, a, like a, like a pick and, and, and they would take a, 
a hammer and they would take that earlobe and they would, they would puncture it. And that would forever tell everyone that this was a, a choice to become a servant of the one that was the leader in that home. And isn't that what the picture of salvation is all about? That, that, that God has called us to recognize that he is our master and we're called to serve him. Now, Jesus said that this relationship is a, is a relationship of, of family. He says in John 15, 15, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all the things I have come that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. That we come into a friendship, relationship with the living God, but we are always called his slave. In fact, if you look at the New Testament, when Paul would write a letter, he would say, I'm an apostle, but then he would say, I'm a, I'm a slave of the living God. I'm a bondservant. I, I have willfully had a mark made on me that I'm, I'm his. And then you look at Peter, and Peter, who had been with Jesus all the times of, of Jesus suffering here on earth and had, had learned to, to follow him, to love him. And when he described himself, he said, I, I'm not, he would describe himself as an apostle, as a, as a leader of the church, but he said, but I, I'm a doulos, I'm a servant of God. And even, even James, half-brother of Jesus, would describe himself as a doulos, a, a slave of God. And, and so I guess what I want to say here is we, we, we've looked at God is not stuttering as he speaks to us. He, he tells us who is good. It's God is good and we're not, and we need to come to know the good God. And submit our lives to him and, and knowing that only, only he can make us good. He, he wants us to realize that, that, that how to worship is we come to him with a holy fear, a healthy fear. Simply giving ourselves to him and, and, and just offering who we are. We, we make a sacrifice by giving God our best. And we come in purity with, with no unconfessed sin. We come not carelessly but carefully. And then as we think about justice, and we, we now live in a world, everyone's demanding their rights. And he wants us to start saying that we should have an eternal perspective, that this world is not our home, we're just, we're just passing through. That, that we willingly submit ourselves to him, that we, we come under his lordship, his leadership. We become his servant and his friend. And so I, I invite you, either for the very first time or or in a renewed way, say, God, I'm yours. I am, I am your slave, and I'm your friend. The simple so what this morning is, do you want to be a friend and a slave of Christ? It happens simply by giving yourself fully and completely to him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you do speak clearly. And you want us to know your plan and, and your will for our life. And it all begins to understand that we approach you simply as we are. And Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning as they hear this message, uh, that they might say, Lord, I, I want to know you. Forgive me of my sins. Make me clean on the inside. I want to approach you in a pure way. I want to have a healthy respect for who you are, and I want to follow you completely, both as your servant, but also as your friend. 
And Father, if we've already made that commitment, why don't we in a fresh way say, God, I'm all yours. I give you my best. I give you my life. Father, we thank you so much that you speak clearly into our lives, that we know who is good, we can know how to worship, and we can know what is just. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.